Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. And I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome once again to New Books in the American West. I'm your host, Stephen Hausman. Today, I'm very excited to have Rosalind Lapierre on the show. Dr. LaPierre is an Associate Professor of Environmental Studies at the University of Montana. She's also the author of Invisible Reality, Storytellers, Storytakers, and the Supernatural World of the Blackfeet, which came out with the University of Nebraska Press in 2017 and won the 2018 Donald L. Fixico Award and the John C. Ewers Award from the Western History Association, and which we'll be talking about today. Welcome to the New Books Network, Rosalind. Oh, thank you for inviting me. First, why don't we just hear a little bit about yourself? What's your background, and how did you become interested in history and in environmental studies? So, um, yeah, that's a big question. <laughs> so, uh, so I'm uh, I'm here at the University of Montana right now, and I'm actually from Montana. Um, I grew up on the Blackfeet Reservation, and uh, my family uh, still continues to live there, and uh, and I. Uh, went to school um, on and off the reservation. My family also worked um, for a while in Washington State on the Yakima Reservation, so we kind of went back and forth um, between reservations. And I uh, got my undergraduate degree in physics. Uh, I went to Colorado College, which is a small liberal arts school in Colorado Springs, Colorado. And um, one of my, you know, kind of longtime passions and loves is actually um, physics and science and understanding the universe and the way it works. And I love reading books about, like, chaos theory. And um, I love reading um, also, like, you know, speculative fiction and, like, dystopic novels. And so I'm all about uh, understanding how the universe works, but then also imagining um, our, our future kind of universes. Um, and out of that kind of love of science and understanding the way the universe works, I then became interested in religion. And um, I come from a very religious family already. And so I grew up 
um, because I grew up in a religious family, I um, was thinking about this after I got my undergraduate degree and um, started thinking about sort of these connections between um, indigenous uh, worldview and then also the introduction of Catholicism and, and Christianity into um, the Blackfeet community. And so um, I actually got a then a graduate degree uh, in religious um, studies and liberal studies um, where I was looking at kind of the history of the Catholic Church. Um, but as part of that, what I was really also interested in was still kind of understanding the way the universe works and the way we think about reality, um, the way we think about our place in the world that we live in. And um, and that evolved then later into me um, going back to school and um, getting a Ph.D. in environmental history. And I got my Ph.D. here at the University of Montana, and I was really fortunate that the program that I was in, the, the history department here, really allowed me to bring together all of the things that I was interested in so I was able to do, you know, part of my studies here were it were uh, related to science, part of my studies were related to religion, and then part of my studies were related to environmental history. So I was able to blend all of those things together um, when I finally um, uh, did, you know, worked on my um, degree. And um, then um, I, uh, after I graduated, uh, the University of Montana was uh, interested in hiring me. So they hired me in the environmental studies department here um, at the university. And what path brought you to writing this particular book, this specific book that we're talking about today? So it's it really a combination of all of those things that I had just mentioned. Yeah. So this particular book, um, so the title of the book, Invisible Reality, is based on a quote from a priest. And there was this uh, priest who was actually working in Canada. Um, so the so the Blackfeet uh, tribe is split by the Canadian-U.S. border. Um, so in Canada, there are three reserves. Uh, in Canada, they call them reserves, not reservations. So in Canada, there are three reserves that are part of the Blackfoot Confederacy. And then in the United States, there's one reservation um, that's part of the Blackfoot Confederacy. And those represent kind of the four um, uh, tribes that were part of the Confederacy. And uh, anyway, there was a there was a priest who was on the Canadian side um, who was working with um, the North Pagan um, tribe and was trying to understand their religious um and their religion and their worldview. And so he actually wrote a monograph about their religion. And as part of that monograph, he talked about how the Blackfoot had um, this belief that they lived in an, they lived in a world where it was an invisible reality. And he said more than that, but from, from his monograph, I sort of took that, um, that phrase um, to use as the title because I thought it was a really good description of kind of the Blackfeet concepts of reality, um, Blackfeet concepts of their worldview, 
but then also the Blackfeet concept of their um, relationship with the natural world and sort of how they see things as both um, part of a natural world that's part of a quote-unquote like visible reality, but then also um, understanding the natural world as something that is, um, as anthropologists would say, kind of more than human, right, a world that exists. Can you tell us a little bit more about the Blackfeet Reservation, the one that's that's surrounded by the United States? What is the history of that place? And can you tell us a little bit more, since this is such a personal book in a lot of ways, can you tell us a bit more about you and your family's connection to that place? Yeah, so, the, so as I had just mentioned, so the Blackfeet historically were several different groups. And um, when the Canadian, when the border um, between Canada and the U.S. was created, um, then those groups were split, um, which... The border for a very long time um, was very porous, right? There really wasn't um, kind of a presence, and so people kind of went back and forth all of the time. And as the territory of the Blackfeet shrunk, so the first um, treaty that the Blackfeet signed with the United States was the 1855 Stevens Treaty, or it's also called the Lame Bulls Treaty. And really all that was was a treaty defining boundaries, right? A lot of the original treaties that the U.S. signs with tribal groups is just to figure out the territory. So, you know, they map it out and say, you know, where is your territory, you know, north, south, east, west. So that's sort of what the Stevens Treaty was, was trying to figure out where the Blackfeet were on the U.S. side of the border, not the Canadian side of the border. And so, but then from that treaty then the United States kind of chipped away um, at that territory so that almost every 10 years um, from kind of the 1855, then it was sort of 1868, 1877, you know, so about every 10 years there was another um, either treaty or executive order that shrunk the Blackfeet territory until 1896 when um, the area that is now Glacier National Park and the Badger to Medicine area um, to the west uh, were taken with executive order um, so that now the boundaries of the uh, Blackfeet Reservation as they exist today were created in 1896. Um, So there was, you know, so it ended up being this very, very large, almost the entire state of Montana, all the way down to um, what it is today, which is, um, I believe, um, don't, don't quote me on this, it's about a million acres. Um, uh, of land uh, right next to Glacier National Park uh, and along the continental, um, uh, the the, uh, Rocky Mountains. You talked earlier about the concept of invisible reality that is, uh, that's the title of the book, um, and particularly its relation to visible reality. Can you tell us a little bit more about this, uh, this dichotomy and how it informs the Blackfeet worldview and kind of relatedly how it relates to ideas about stories and narratives and, and what you call real stories in the books, in the book, excuse me. Okay. <laughs> That's a really, okay. So, <laughs> Big um, questions. Yes. So, so in the book, I actually sort of explain this in several different chapters. So uh-huh. I actually do have a chapter just on the idea of invisible reality. And I have a chapter on sort of the visible world or visible reality. Um, and then I kind of throughout the entire book, I discussed the idea of 
when the Blackfeet use the phrase store or word story, you know, what exactly do they mean um, in English? You know, so, so um, kind of, again, going back to the one monograph that was written, you know, in the late 19th century by this one particular priest, and he's trying to figure out what the relationship um, is that the Blackfeet have um, or, or what, their, what their concept of reality is, really. So he was interested in, like, trying to figure out, again, their worldview, kind of their religious understanding, but really he wanted to know what was their concept of reality because he was recognizing that the way that he saw the world on a day-to-day basis was not the way the Blackfeet saw the world on a day-to-day basis. And so he started thinking about that and writing about that. And then at that late 19th century, early 20th century, when we start seeing a lot of visitors right, that come to this area, that come to the Blackfeet Reservation. So there are a lot of both kind of amateur um, ethnographers, uh, amateur kind of collectors, um, and then there's also... Um, trained, you know, scientifically or scholarly trained, academically trained um, uh, ethnographers, what we will eventually call anthropologists, right, Um, historians um, who are coming through the reservation and um, both collecting objects to put in museums, but then also collecting stories, collecting songs, taking photographs of people. Um, some, mu- some museums actually sent out painters, professional painters, who came out and painted individuals, painted landscapes. Um, so there was that huge effort at that time period that other scholars have written about, kind of that salvage anthropology time. Um, so there were a lot of visitors that were coming to the Blackfeet Reservation during this time. And some of them were taking the time to ask really, um, really important questions about who the Blackfeet were, you know, what was their history, what was their story. Uh, other people who came were not so careful, right? They just came and were interested in sort of spending a short amount of time and um, collecting and taking it back to the museum. But one of the things that was occurring at that time, so you've got sort of the churches, you know, the Catholic church was one, the Methodist church was another who are on the reservation. Um, And then you have the collectors who are there. And in both cases, they are asking the Blackfeet to tell them about how they are viewing the world. And so one of the things that the Blackfeet are doing with some of the collectors is they're doing exactly that, right? They're saying, well, we have this different idea of reality, and here's what our idea of reality is, and here's how we think about the world that we live in, and here's how we imagine the world that we live in. And so you can go back to those documents that are now mostly held in museums, and one of the things that the Blackfeet discuss is that they think that there is that there there are multiple um, that there are multiple worlds that they live in, 
and I describe this in one of the chapters, um, where the Blackfeet believe that there are kind of three separate worlds, and that within all three of those worlds, they're kind of parallel um, in the sense of um, what types of entities live in those worlds. So, for example, um, they believe that there is a sky world, um, they believe there's a water world, and they believe what they, the word that gets translated as below world, but what is here on Earth. And in each one of these places, there are um, entities or beings, there are animals, there are plants, um, there are people living in villages, you know, there are um, monsters, there are, you know, kind of fantastic uh, creatures. And so all three of them have a parallel kind of existence and that humans um, live in the below world, but humans can go to these other worlds. Um, they can, uh, uh, they can, with the help of a um, entity, another supernatural entity from one of these worlds, can move from world to world. And the Blackfeet um, believe that that those three separate worlds, um, for the most part, are invisible. And they make up the vast majority of what um, the Blackfeet think of when they think about, you know, their worldview. And um, what we can actually see um, here on Earth is a very small part of this huger um, kind of existence. And... Um, and that's what we would consider kind of the visible world or visible realm. And um, and so when the Blackfeet at this time period, kind of late 19th century, early 20th century, are being interviewed and um, talked to, they're explaining this reality, right? They're explaining um, how they view the world. And like I said, you know, one of... Uh, it, you know, one of the people who writes this down is this one particular priest who is trying to figure out. Um, and and I and um, because he also has a very um, because he's Catholic and the Catholics have their own unique worldview of how they think um, that they have their own concept of reality that it was a little, I think it was a little easier for him, the priest, to translate kind of the Blackfeet idea of their concept of reality. And um, and so that's one of the things that I write about in the book. Um, and then I also just write about, um, in terms of the word story, is that the when the Blackfeet were asked to be, um, to share stories with other people, that, you know, that the Blackfeet idea of a story is something that is speaking about the invisible realm and not the visible realm. Mm -hmm. And so um, when um, they were being interviewed, they were almost always telling stories about um, this, the, these places um, that they considered part of their own reality. So it gets a little bit so <laughs> it gets a little bit complicated, but you know, there was, they really did, believe that there were simultaneously existing, right, an invisible realm and a visible realm, um, and that they as humans were part of these multiple um, kind of existences. 
And so they never just saw themselves as being human, living um, in a natural, visible world. Um, that was just not part of their concept um, of reality at all. So how does this worldview, um, particularly prior to the reservation era, but not just limited to the, pri- to the pre-reservation era, how does this worldview that the Blackfeet have and, of, and this, this, this perspective on their place in this, this wider universe of worlds, how does it affect the way that they organize their families and their society? And in particular, how does it translate, at least in part, into their mobility and where they went and when they went there? Does that question make sense? <laughs> Yeah. So, <laughs> so, um, so to begin with, so the Blackfeet always thought of humans as being entities that lacked supernatural power, right? So one of the things that was important for the Blackfeet to, uh, to have was relationships with entities that had supernatural power. And so they understood themselves as humans, right, as having no supernatural power. And so one of the purposes of life, or one of, I guess the, one of the goals in life, was to acquire um, as many sort of allies um, or relationships with supernatural entities that would share their supernatural power with you as a human. And so... Part of what then, part of what people did then was they would spend their life, um, this is an odd way to say this, but sort of collecting um, supernatural allies, right? So, for example, um, the Blackfeet think of names as not, um, as something that is a, let me see how I can explain this. They thought of names as a connection to a supernatural entity. So a name was not just a name, but what came with a name was usually um, a story, usually a song, um, sometimes a material object that came with it. But what came with a name was also the super, a, a relationship or an allyship with a supernatural entity. Um, And so when babies were first born and they were first named, um, usually by not a family member, but somebody outside of the family, what that person was providing that child was their very first supernatural ally and that this supernatural ally was going to be there to provide, um, for that child. So it could be providing that child protection. It could be providing that child a good health. Um, it could be providing that child um, uh, what the Blackfeet would consider, you know, being lucky. Um, it could be providing that child wealth. Um, so it was providing that child with uh, the ability to live a good life. Um, but that was not the only supernatural ally that that person would have over time, over their childhood, teenage years, young adulthood. One of the things that they're doing is they're creating relationships with multiple supernatural allies. And so that 
throughout life as they are, as I said a moment ago, collecting, right, these supernatural allies. I mean, so part of the purpose of that was that you just, it, it helps you live a good life. And so by the end of your life, um, you would have multiple supernatural allies that were part of your everyday um, existence. You could have, you know, anywhere from a dozen to several dozen allies um, that were part of um, part of your daily life. So, um, just to go off topic a minute, you know, we often hear kind of in the common vernacular, right, that people have like their quote unquote spirit guide or spirit animal, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and um and the blackfeet don't quite believe that like that that's kind of a kind of a new agey thing i mean and the blackfeet would never black but they would think that if you only had one that you were a really poor person <laughs> kind of the name of the game was to have a lot yeah right um and that they did different things so you would have one particular ally that was really good at helping you with hunting. Another ally is really good at helping you collect food. Um, another ally, there were, for example, um, back in the old days, you know, when people had to get across rivers, it was, it was often very dangerous. So there were particular supernatural allies that would help people um, uh, get across a river, right? Um, go to war, um, help, raise children, go through childbirth. So there was like multiple allies that helped you do lots of different things in your daily life. And so really the kind of name of the game was to get and acquire as many supernatural allies um, as you could um, within your lifetime. And that was um, what allowed you to be successful. That's what allowed you to be wealthy. That's what allowed you to, you know, live a good life. So having said all of that, um, you didn't have to do that if you didn't want to, right? You didn't have to ever have any supernatural allies. You could, as a human, um, live your entire life without any um, relationship with any supernatural entities. Um, people knew that they existed, right? People knew that they were there within the world that they lived in, but you did not have to have a relationship with anybody, Um the Blackfeet thought that that was foolish, right? They thought that that was not a good idea to do that, but you could. So there was kind of a um, a sense of uh, um, individuality, right, in terms of the way people live their lives. Um, so, so there wasn't a specific um, there wasn't a specific view that you had to do it one particular way. Um, but having said that. One of the things that I thought was interesting when I was growing up and hearing stories from my grandmother and hearing stories from my great aunts was that um, they often shared stories of relatives. And, um, for example, my one of the stories that I tell in the book is about my grandmother's grandfather, whose name was Spotted Bear. And, you know, he always had these great adventures and my grandmother had, you know, these really great stories about the adventures that he went on, um, whether it was going to war or raiding the crow and, 
Um, and he had several different supernatural allies. And one of the ways that he was able to, um, to be successful in the world was he was able to do things, for example, um, such as change the weather. And he could change the direction of the wind, um, not himself personally, but with the help of a supernatural ally, he was able to change the direction of the wind. And I had heard stories about him and about that type of activity kind of all my life, right? I heard stories about people who were able to stop the snow from snowing, um, people who were able to you know, if they were, you know, racing their horse and their horse got tired, they could do, with the help of a supernatural ally, make their horse start running faster. Um, stories where people changed from human to animals and then back to human again. Um, stories where people were able to um, start a fire and walk through fire, right? So I'd heard a lot of these stories about kind of how humans were able to um, transform themselves, um, or how humans were able to change the natural world. And so I didn't think about this um, again. I didn't think about it intellectually until much later in life um, when I started writing about some of this stuff. And then I was recognizing that, you know, in environmental history and environmental studies, we often have this kind of trope, right, about Native Americans that Native Americans, quote-unquote, you know, live in harmony and balance with nature. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I was recognizing when I started writing down some of my own family stories was kind of almost the opposite, which was um, they didn't really, like in terms of their own personal philosophy, they were not living in, quote-unquote, harmony and balance with nature but they were thinking of the natural world as something that could be changed, um, something that could be adapted adapted to them instead of the other way around, and something that could be controlled. And so that whole um, thought process of trying to understand that really then kind of shifted my idea of how the Blackfeet thought of the world that they lived in. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the Bla I, I would argue that the Blackfeet never really had a philosophy of, quote-unquote, living in harmony and balance with nature, but really their philosophy of living was that they could control and change the natural world as they saw fit. And that's really a completely different philosophy of life. Um, where you're not just adapting to the natural world around you, but you're making the natural world adapt to you as an individual and you as a people. Um, so I started thinking then about these stories that I had been told as a child and grew up with, but then also the stories I went back and was reading, right, from these museum collections in a completely different way and started thinking about the Blackfeet and their kind of philosophy of the world in a different way um, because they were not going about the world as um, reacting to the world, but they were really going about the world where they were the actors um, within the world that they were living in. And 
Um, so that was something then, um, as I started writing this particular book, I was interested in finding sort of more of those stories about that idea of the Blackfeet thinking that they could control and change nature um, when they saw fit, um, but with the help of the supernatural, the supernatural allies in their lives. So that was something that um, I think that is uh, not necessarily unique to the Blackfeet, because I think there are other um, indigenous um, uh, communities that have a similar kind of worldview, um, but I think that it's something that um, in this particular um, in this particular book, I think that's something that is an original. It's an original kind of contribution to the discussion about how indigenous people think of um, the worlds that they live in and their relationship to nature um, and the natural world. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash nbn50 and use code nbn50 to get 50% off. That's code nbn50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. Yeah, it's a really potent um, and powerful antidote to the kind of the old ecological Indian myth that you still hear bandied about a lot. It really, uh, it, it does a good job of working in opposition to that. Right, yeah, yeah. By the time we get to the early 20th century or so, the Blackfeet had created what was really an economy based around these stories that you're talking about on their on the Blackfeet reservation. So can you tell us how that happened and what were the contours of this, I guess you would call it a trade? Because as you say in the book, Blackfeet people doing things like singing songs, telling stories and histories, posing for pictures that were being taken by white Americans, this was never really as strictly a one-sided or as exploitative um, a, a practice as some scholars have made it out to be in the past. Right. So, I mean, that, that, that was just something that as I started doing uh, research on, so the research I was really interested in, right, when I first started thinking about this was I was really interested in that big question of like, what was, what did the Black Sea think about the world that they lived in? What was their concept of reality? What was their idea? What was their relationship with the natural world? Right? Those are kind of the big questions I was interested in. And um, to go about that, right, I started with kind of family stories. And from there, I went to looking at those um, uh, museum collections that were collected at the turn of the last century. Um, and it was from within those collections that I started, one, not just reading the stories that people had told and left behind, um, but then also dug into the archives um, to look at 
the relationships that they had with some of the collectors that came to the Blackfeet, um, the Blackfeet tribe. And so, um, so at, uh, you know, the subtitle of my book is um, Storytellers, um, Storytakers, and the Supernatural World of the Blackfeet. So part of the book is about kind of the storytellers, right? The Blackfeet people who um, worked with museums, um, and left behind these stories that we now have um, to help us understand um, not only the Blackfeet, but just indigenous people in general and the world that they lived in at the turn of the last century. Um, but then I also was interested in the story, what I call the story takers, right? The people who work for museums, both who are amateur, like amateurs and, and professionals who are collecting this information. And, um, and yes, Kind of, again, one of the, um, I would argue, um, uh, stereotypes, uh, sometimes it's true, a lot of times it's not true, um, the stereotype that a lot of times when museums came into communities, um, that, that it was kind of a one-sided relationship, um, that museums came in and stole things from Native people, um, that, that somehow, you know, grandma was getting cheated um, by the museum. And one of the things that I just came across over and over again in different museum collections um, was, um, to a certain degree, kind of the opposite, which was there were oftentimes negotiations that happened between individuals and museums, individuals who knew the value of something that they were selling, individuals who would negotiate to get a, high, a higher price or wait, wait them out. Um, there's one story that I tell in the book where there was an older uh, woman whose husband had passed away. Um, a museum was interested in something, an object that her husband had, and she knew that she could talk to several museums, that she could negotiate with several museums um, and get a high price. And she waited, waited them out, you know, and waited for a couple of years, and she got the price that she wanted. So, you know, Grandma was not getting cheated, um, in that particular case, by a museum, you know, Grandma was the, was uh, smart enough to know that there was an economy that had evolved um, on the reservation around working with museums. And so, one of the thing I, one of the things I talk about in the book is that um, you know there was I, I describe it as kind of an unintended economy, right? I mean, it wasn't it wasn't a, it wasn't a planned economy. It just sort of happened where um, that when the original um, sort of collectors um, came to the reservation, um, they were paying people, you know, they paid them um, for their stories. They paid them for songs. They paid them for getting their photographs taken. They paid them for objects that had already been made, but then they paid them also for, to create new objects. So over time, um, because this economy developed, um, over a couple of decades um, of time that um, it became part of something that people in the community um, would not right, um, talk to a museum unless they were getting paid um, because they knew that that was um, um, part of the system. But then uh, um, related to that is that the economic system that did exist on the on the Blackfeet Reservation, but also, um, you know, other reservations, was really an economy 
of what we would consider today kind of a credit debit system, right, where the federal government um, would have uh, monies that belonged to the tribe or even monies that belonged to individual tribal members, but that but the tribal member would never actually see the money as money. They would see it as a as a debit that they could go and use down at the at the um, you know the general store, um, or they could go credit something at the general store, and then that credit would be paid off eventually um, by the federal government from that person's individual um, money account, right? So in terms of actually seeing physical money, um, uh, that didn't exist within that federal system of kind of a debit-credit system. Uh-huh. So when outside entities, such as museums and collectors, came, they brought cash. And so in terms of this idea of that an unintended economy got created, it was also a cash economy. And so for the Blackfeet, they wanted cash um, that then they could use how they saw fit, um, not just only be able to go to that one particular general store where you could only, you know, um, purchase things there and, again, be part of that kind of debit credit system. With cash, you could go anywhere um, and spend money. Um, And so when these early um, museums, uh, and collectors came, um, they often, almost always paid in, in cash. And so because of that, then the Blackfeet um, asked for cash, right? So, um, so when this uh, economy was happening, um, um, the Blackfeet uh, became very um, savvy about um, the price of, um, at the price, I guess, and the value of their worth, right? Um, of how much they could charge for um, a photograph, how much they could charge for certain objects, um, how much they could charge um, for telling stories. Um, And so um, that was something. And then eventually when, like, for example, Glacier National Park was created in 1910, um, the Great Northern Railroad hired um, Blackfeet people to work uh, as... um, kind of, uh, I guess, uh, uh, ambassadors, tour guides um, for tourists, and um, they were also paid um, for that. So um, over time, that sort of economy evolved, and then and then it eventually ended, right, because then museums um, were not coming to reservations um, as much anymore to come and uh, collect materials. Um, but then that what ended up evolving is what we consider now kind of the arts and crafts trade, right? Um, so once Glacier National Park was created, people were still creating um, new arts and crafts that were then being sold um, by them um, either at Glacier National Park or then um, a couple of the kind of general stores uh, that uh, were on the reservation who were um, purchasing people's um, objects um, that they then sold. So. I'm curious if you can talk a little bit about the the process or the method of writing this book because there's a, a number of I mean you're 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 very present in the book itself you describe for instance towards the end a dream that you had at the end of the writing process and you describe in the book 
sort of a, a road trip that you took around um, Blackfeet territory. And so I'm curious um, what the process of writing this book was like. And then, if at all, how did writing this book affect the way that you thought about and viewed the world around you? You know, as I said before, I mean, one of the things I was interested, you know, kind of the big picture question, right, for this book was, you know, really understanding kind of the Blackfeet concept of reality, the Blackfeet, um, you know, understanding of their natural world and their relationship with it. And so um, as I was telling that story, you know, I just kind of started talking about my own, um, and I'm kind I'm I would argue I'm not as present in the book <laughs> as, <laughs> I mean, I am, but I'm sort of not. I, I mean, I tried to be, I tried to begin each chapter with a vignette, like a family story of vignette um, from, uh, from uh, my own family mm-hmm. um, that kind of captured kind of the essence of that particular chapter. So each chapter does begin with sort of a, a short kind of family story um, and I actually start the book with a um, uh, relatively long preface uh, where I'm trying to address a lot of questions that people have asked me in the past um, about um, doing this type of history and kind of the methodology, that kind of stuff. Um, but then in that as well, I sort of um, talk about my own sort of personal story of um, learning stories when I was growing up, um, then going to museums and reading um, some of these stories, and um, and then also trying to write and and tell um, this one particular um, a story about the Blackfeet. Um, and so, as part of that, I do include um, some um, stories about myself. So, for example, um, one that I do um, discuss is, you know, I I am a trained ethnobotanist. Um, I did spend um, about 20 years um, with my grandmother and my oldest aunt um, learning ethnobotany. And um, uh, I apprenticed with them, um, basically, and they took me out to um, talk about plants, to um, uh, teach me how to use them, um, but then also talk about their um, the stories behind those particular plants. Because oftentimes, the objects and the plants that the Blackfeet use some usually have some sort of um, connection to the supernatural realm. Um, they usually have a long story that is connected to a particular plant. And so um, it's not just, you know, oh, you know, drink wild mint tea because it tastes good. Um, there's usually a reason why a particular plant is being used and how it's being used. Um, and uh, so those types of lessons take a lot longer to learn. So one of the stories I tell in the book um, is how, you know, I, when I started learning about plants, I really wasn't particularly interested in plants, <laughs> but it was something that um, the my uh, elders knew about and something my family knew about, and it's something that as a family, um, the women in the family wanted this knowledge to be passed on. And so um, I was just basically told, you're going to be this person who's going to learn about this, about plants. And I was kind of like, oh, okay, <laughs> how are we going to do that? Um, and But over time, I now I am interested in plants, right? <laughs> 
and, and I do, uh, I, I, you know, teach about plants now at the University of Montana and, um, I provide, um, uh, I provide advice and provide, um, you know, I serve as kind of a, I guess, uh, both a traditional ecological knowledge expert and kind of an academic, um, you know, expert to a lot of different, um, groups and programs and stuff, um, because of my, um, ethnobotanical, um, knowledge and then also the traditional knowledge that I learned um, from my grandmother, um, and from my aunt. Um, but I do include stories like that in the book to try and help frame, um, not necessarily my story, mm-hmm. but to frame their story mm-hmm. and how that connection and that idea of how um, indigenous people learn um, knowledge um, and and share knowledge through the generations uh, is then also connected back to um, this idea of the Blackfeet um, having a different concept of reality and kind of a different relationship with the natural world. I know you have to run soon, but before we let you go, I have one more of those big questions for you. Um, And that is, if there's one takeaway uh, that you hope readers come away from this book with, what might that be? Hmm. Well, I mean, I think that, I I think that it uh, hopefully is that again, kind of um, pushing back against, that, that common trope about um, indigenous people, um, quote-unquote, living in harmony and balance with nature. I think that most indigenous communities have much more complex um, stories to tell, much more complex histories, uh, you know, much more complex um, religious, religions and worldviews. And I think that if we start there, um, and personally, I, I think that you know, you really do have to start at a community's um, religious ideas and their worldview to understand themselves as a community, to then be able to understand their history, um, and to understand, again, kind of their philosophy and the way that they go about thinking about the world that they live in. Um, and, um, you know, one of the things that surprised me when I was doing this research and I kind of use the year 1910 as kind of a fence post that I go back and forth to. So I chose 1910 as a time because it was the year before my grandparents were born. So I, wa- I was thinking about what, is, what did the world look like before, right before my grandparents were born? You know, what world were they, did they, were they born into? And so I look at what is going on in the reservation. Um, I'm looking at those individuals who had historically been people who had a free life living on the northern Great Plains, and now they live in a much smaller landscape on a reservation, right? A a reservation that literally had a fence around it. Um, And you know, what was going on in terms of that transition? Um, There was still a lot, there was, you know, um, poverty, there was diseases, there was death. There were a lot of things that we could list as kind of very um, 
negative um, and detrimental, you know, uh, situations that people were living in on the reservation as people were transitioning to living on the reservation. And one of the things I was really surprised at when looking at these stories that they left behind um, now for people like me, they're, you know, a, a descendant of them to read is they're not telling us stories of hardship. Mm-hmm. They're not telling us stories of, you know, kind of what we know to be true, right? We, we don't hear stories of starvation. We don't hear stories of um, disease and death. Um, what we hear is the exact opposite, which is, you know, we hear these really powerful stories of how they have control of the world that they live in. You know, when, when in reality, when in reality, they have no control over the world that they live in at that time, right? At that early 20th century time. And so that was really shocking to me and surprising. And then that's what I wanted to write about. You know, I wanted to write about how is it that people have this philosophy of strength? And I guess we right now we use the word resilience, but really the kind of this philosophy of strength and power and control um, when that's not the reality that they live in. Um, and I was surprised when I was reading some of these materials from that time period, you know, I thought, oh, they're going to be complaining, right? <laughs> Shouldn't they be complaining about like the world that they're living in, and they are not. Um, They're telling a completely different story. So one of the things I was interested in was like, okay, let's let's actually tell the story they're telling, right? Right. So I didn't want to write a history. I didn't want to write a history of the Blackfeet as, um, you know, they're they're poor, they're diseased, they're, um, you know, et cetera. Like all these bad things are happening to them. Because that's not what, that's, all those bad things are happening to them, but that's not how they view themselves in the world. Yeah. Um, so that was that was kind of what I wanted to, when I was writing this book, uh, that was one of the takeaways that I had, that I was trying to then um, share that story in this particular book. And I'm hoping that when people read that, they also take that away. They, they come away with that view of... Um, how did those people think about themselves um, at that time period instead of us saying how they thought about themselves? Yeah. And then finally, traditionally on the New Books Network, we like to get a preview from our guests about what they might be working on next. So if you feel like sharing, now that this book has been out for a couple of years, can you tell us a little bit about what your next next project might be? So. Yeah, so I'm working on a book right now that I have tentatively titled um, Plants That Purify, uh, The Natural and Supernatural History of Smudging. And however, now that I've been researching it for a couple of years, it's not going to (laughs) be completely about plants that purify. (laughs) So one of the things I was interested in was certain plants that the Blackfeet and other tribes use as part of purification, right? Purification rituals. And, and as I started researching this and talking to people, talking to elders, um, I was realizing that the idea of purity and purification is very gendered. 
and that historically Blackfeet religious practice was very gendered, um, and that historically women played a central role in a lot of Blackfeet religious practice. And so right now, that particular book, um, Plants That Purify, is looking at um, several different things, right? So it's looking at gender, um, it's looking at the role of women as leaders in religious practice, um, it's looking at the concept of purity and purification, and um, and it's looking at kind of the multiple, and this is, I've found about three dozen plants um, that the Blackfeet use um, as part of uh, multiple, you know, different um, ceremonial practices um, for purity and for purification. And so it's kind of about lots of different things. It's the same time period. I'm still interested in that kind of um, early reservation um, time period uh, and that transition from living um, a more free lifestyle to a less um, free lifestyle um, and about the change over in religious practice that happens at that time, a changeover from um, being primarily um, participating in Blackfeet religious practice to um, to uh, converting to Catholicism, mainly Catholicism, I mean, how that changed people's ideas about religion, worldview. Um, and um, again, back to my big questions, right? What is their concept of reality and what is their connection to um, and their understanding of the natural world. It sounds like you're in that really exciting phase in a project's life where you're just kind of, you're, you're, you're finding new stuff and it's sending you down into, into unexpected directions. Yes, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Rosalind Lapierre is an associate professor of environmental studies at the University of Montana and she is the author of Invisible Reality, Storytellers, Storytakers, and the Supernatural World of the Blackfeet which came out with the University of Nebraska Press in 2017 and won several awards from the Western History Association in 2018. Thank you so much for talking with me today, Rosalind. Yeah, let me just say one final thing. It's yeah. going to come out in paperback this summer. All right, it's great. It's coming out in July, July okay. 2019 in paperback. Thanks again, Rosalind. Yep, thank you so much. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.